0: Welcome back, podcast friends, to I Am Healthy and Fit. I Am Healthy and Fit is the affirmation that begins changing your health and fitness from the inside out. I'm Steve Jordan, your health and fitness coach. Welcome, Dr. Haskam, to the I Am Healthy and Fit podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here with me today. You are Thank coming you. to us. Yeah, you're welcome. It's, uh, you know, I'm excited about this conversation because you have so much information in and around health and its relationship to functional health. Medicine is your traditional practice, but you, what I've learned before we got on this recording is that you went from uh, a surgeon practicing, you know, uh, surgery, dealing with spine and, and helping people get out of pain to now doing it with more functionality uh, without pain or without surgery and helping people live pain-free. And you actually are now even doing it remotely with people online since COVID uh, and you're not able to see patients. So I'm super excited about this. Personally, I think it's an important part of our movement today in health and, uh, and medicine, where now we're bridging the gap between you know, medicine and function and doing it naturally and more homeopathic. So give us a little background about you and how you got to this point of, you know, that transition from medicine to doing things now more holistically.
1: Well, I was a a major spine surgeon. I did a, a complex spinal deformity fellowship in Minneapolis, Minnesota in 1985, 86. And I practiced for 32 years, mostly in Seattle. I spent four years in Sun Valley doing primary spine care is what I call it it was during that four years in Sun Valley that I went from being a major referral surgeon to, do, to doing really primary care spine surgery. And I had no resources. I had to do everything myself. And that's where I really learned this whole process of rehabbing patients. And I've always been, I started out in internal medicine, and I've always had a bent towards rehab anyway. And right from the very beginning, I was always pretty good about making sure medications were stabilized. People were, were reasonably, their anxiety was down, etc. But I didn't really understand chronic pain at all. Then in 1990, about five years into my practice, I developed a panic attack. Hmm. And prior to that, my image of myself, and I truly was a fearless spine surgeon, my attitude was bring it up. And I knew so little about knew so little about anxiety. When a patient came in at age 20 on my orthopedic service, I had to go to the textbook to look up the word anxiety, I didn't know what it meant. I went from being a fearless surgeon with the attitude of just bring it on, and I was, I was doing extremely complex surgery to a panic attack in one day. Mm. And for the next 13 years, I could not put that back in the back. I could not get over it. Mm. And so I thought it was psychological, like everybody does. Turns out that it is not psychological. Turns out anxiety is the response to a threat, it's not the cause. Mm. So when your body reacts to a threat with inflammation, increased metabolism, muscle tension, heart rate, et cetera, your body's full of adrenaline, cortisol, histamines, but also full of inflammatory cytokines. Your cortisol levels are up, so your glucose is up. And what happens is that that is the sensation generated by that elevated threat is what we call anxiety. Mm. And so I spent 13 years in psychotherapy trying to solve this, but the unconscious brain processes about 20 million bits of information per second, 20 million. You know how much the conscious brain processes? Just take a guess. I, I, mm, let's say 10,000. That's that's a, a typical guess. It actually processes 40, 40. Zero. 40. Zero. 20, 20 wow. million compared to 40. So, yeah. And remember, so it turned out, I'll jump a, hit back in the story a little bit. It turned out uh, at that moment in 1990, I, let a, I went on, I go, what happened? I mean, here I am, I'm cruising along high level spine practice in seattle doing complex stuff and one day i developed a panic attack Mm. and from that point on I developed multiple panic attacks and what a panic attack is it turns out it's basically a cytokine storm it turns out that what happens your body literally explodes and so my heart started to race i had troubles breathing i began to sweat i felt faint and obviously i thought i was going to die and it lasted about 15 to 20 seconds which is a typical panic attack Then I started having multiple panic attacks all the time.
0: Mm. And my
1: panic attacks started in a pretty typical spot, which is driving on a freeway at night, pretty typical place for it to start. But what I've now learned, literally I ended a 30-year quest about six months ago, is that it's basically a dysregulated autonomic nervous system.
0: Mm.
1: In other words, threat is processed by the body, whether it's a mental threat or a physical threat, as a surgeon, I was a master at suppressing mental threats. Hmm. I was incredibly good at suppressing anxiety and frustration. Just bring it on, I was a perfectionist, suppressed it, kept moving forward, nothing could take me down. Well, it turns out that repressed emotions are also a threat. And also obviously unpleasant thoughts and emotions are a threat. So it turns out that physical threats and mental threats are processed the same way in the brain. So the threat can be a predator, an animal, bully, bad boss, could be a virus, bacteria, trauma, those are all threats that are physical, and your body can respond with that survival response, but the mental threats are actually the much bigger problem, because humans can't escape their consciousness, you can't escape your thoughts and emotions, mm-hmm. and what got me to quote the top of the hill, if you want to call it that, I was 37 years old, peak of my career, beautiful house, everything that I could want, and I was sort of miserable, I started developing anxiety at that point, but I didn't recognize it. So I went again from being fearless to panic and panic attack in one day. It turns out that a panic attack is literally a neurochemical response; it's a dysregulated autonomic nervous system response, and it is not psychological. So again, going back to that twenty million versus forty ratio, you're not going to solve anxiety by talking about it. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. I know I've had minor, two minor panic attacks in my life, and they were definitely not. They were not fun. I haven't had one in over ten years, but yeah. And I have a friend right now in Florida that is ridden with anxiety, and and he's on tons of medication. I mean, he's like a a a shadow of himself normally that I've seen, and he's been stuck in this for probably about seven months now. And you know, we're all scared for him. You know, it's 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 just it's scary. I I would love to talk to him. Yeah, and we have we have amazing.
1: I mean, I have probably over 1,500 patients now that have gone pain-free. So it turns out, again, the mental threat is a bigger problem than the physical threat because you can't escape your thoughts, right? Right. So you either Mm. suffer with them, suppress them, or you mask them with some type of addiction. But what happens if you don't feel the emotional pain, your body will have physical symptoms because what happens, it turns out that anxiety, bipolar, depression, and schizophrenia are all inflammatory disorders. All of of them have elevated inflammatory markers. Mm. There's a test called IL-6, it's an interleukin-6 inflammatory marker, and every one of those diseases has elevated markers. turns out that Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, adult-onset diabetes, all have elevated inflammatory markers. So again, when we have sustained response to the environment, sustained sustained threat, your body's on fire, especially the immune system. The reason why stress kills people, stress isn't the problem; it's a chemical reaction to stress. Because remember, the stress that's the worst stress is the stress that you can't solve, mm-hmm. right? And of course, in chronic pain, you can't solve that. When you're trapped by your thoughts and emotions. You can't solve that. So what happened? I was in chronic pain for over 15 years, which included extreme anxiety, suicidal depression, and obsessive compulsive disorder, I had migraine headaches, my ears were ringing, feet were burning, skin rashes, stomach issues, back pain, neck pain. There's over 30 potential symptoms of a stressed nervous system. And again, not psychological, it's physiological. In mm-hmm. other words, it's the body's response to a threat. And this elevated sympathetic nervous system response, this defensive response creates that sensation we call anxiety. Mm-hmm. Now acute anxiety is critical because you not survived more than two or three minutes without it, right? It's a survival mechanism, but it's what you have to survive is how we evolve. But it's not who you are, who right. you are, is, who you are is this conscious brain over here. And again, 20 million to 40 ratio. And so the first step in dealing with this, well let me ask you a rhetorical question that most people don't get the answer to. It's basically a trick question. Okay. If I had to make one point on the show today is that medicine and society has to get this right because anxiety is crippling society. Every every living creature has anxiety. Humans have consciousness what makes it worse. I call it the curse of consciousness because you can't escape it. So every human being has to deal with anxiety and it's a whole different discussion about what makes somebody's anxiety worse than the next person, but every person has anxiety. And in this day and age, especially with COVID, anxiety has become crippling. Hmm. So I, I guess my first thing is, is I hopefully made myself reasonably clear that anxiety is not primarily psychological. Does that make mm-hmm. sense?
0: Yeah. Well, you say it's, infla- it's, it's part of the nervous system, and it's an inflammatory response that right. you know, your body is going through. So you know, it, the, it's potentially the cause. It's your perception of whatever it is that you are fearful of or may be bothering you. Like, for example, in my friend's case, it's financial. You know, potentially losing his house, you know, and everything he worked for, his business and whatnot. So, you know, he's ridden with fear, and you know they were going to Baker Act him. You know, they, it's which is you know something they do when you you know are on the verge of potentially suicide. So, you know, uh, it's pretty serious and it's scary, and I feel helpless here. You know, not being able to help him out. So, yeah, it's for those even around people who are who have anxiety. It's You know, that creates anxiety, right? Because you want to help the person. And, you know, unfortunately, the things that, you know, I'm seeing that are being done, they're just drugging them up and making them, you know, numb.
1: Well, I developed an obsessive compulsive disorder, which people think think of it as sort of a joke, like washing your hands or going up and down stairs. So I had what's called internal obsessive compulsive disorder. And what that's driven by is intrusive thoughts. So I had the Mm -hmm. internal version where I had a negative thought or unpleasant thought and I counteracted it with a different thought. So it's thought, counter thought all day long. Mm-hmm. I had that for seven solid years. It was mm-hmm. awful. It's the worst part of the human experience. The prognosis for OCD is horrible mm-hmm. and I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, again, it's about, this is a programming issue and a neuroplasticity issue. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you try to fix the problem. Where's your attention? It's on the problem. Yes. And so talk therapy actually makes it worse. Medications just dull It and don't solve the problem. And the solution to OCD, which I'm going to use as a metaphor for any pain, particularly mental pain, whether it's chronic physical pain or mental pain, why the solution is the same is that you stimulate your brain to change through a different direction and to shift onto different circuits with neuroplasticity. Where neuroplasticity is, is that your brain changes every second with new cells, new connections, the circuit pattern shift. And when I was in medical school 40 years ago, I, we didn't know the brain changed at all. We thought it was this sort of static structure that just gets shrunk down as you get older. And we do know in chronic pain or chronic anxiety, people's brains physically shrink.
0: Mm-hmm. You actually
1: can't think as clearly, but when you treat it successfully, it physically re-expands. Mm-hmm. And what happens under chronic threat, remember you're full of histamines, cortisol, adrenaline, and inflammatory cytokines, The brain itself through what's called glial cells fills off these cytokines. Now what a cytokine is, is a small molecule. They're small proteins, about six or eight amino acids long. They're also as neurotransmitters, which are connections between nerves. And these cytokines are the connection or the signals between cells. And so there's inflammatory cytokines that mobilize white blood cells to fight off bacteria, et cetera. There's also anti-inflammatory cytokines, which helps the tissue grow and regenerate. So the essence of the problem with chronic mental, physical pain is ongoing threat, which means ongoing inflammation, which means ongoing tissue damage. Like I said before, we have elevated cytokines that are sustained from your mental threat. You you develop physical symptoms. Again, I had 17 of these at the same time. Hmm. So what happened is you learn the tools to calm down the nervous system. All my physical symptoms are gone. Every one of them, all 17 of those are gone. The reason why, remember, I dropped my chemical bath down, my nervous system's calmed down, I understand the tools to do that, which is not my number of matter, by the way. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. And again, the prognosis for OCD is horrible because again, OCD has very strong data that's an inflammatory disorder. Mm-hmm. So it's happened, medicine, which is frustrating to me, and that's actually why I quit my surgical practice was because of this exact issue, that medicine is focused on structure, cause, and everything. And at least 90, maybe 95% of all physical symptoms are due to changes in the body's chemistry or what's called the physiology. Hmm. So there's a term now called medically unexplained symptoms, which I'm really offended by because when your body's full full of inflammatory cytokines, that's not normal. There's something wrong and then your body's going to function differently. And then so at least 90% of all physical symptoms are generated by changes in the body's chemistry. So the symptoms are completely explained but my poor patients in chronic pain, nobody believes them. Hmm. Especially, the, especially the anxiety, you know, the idea is, well, you're just not tough enough. Well, guess what? 20 million to 40. Are you kidding me? Hmm. And I'm, I'm telling you, there's not a tougher human being on this planet than me when I was a complex spine surgeon. I mean, I was yeah. legendary for being tough. And I suspect, looking at your picture on the internet that you're pretty tough too. Yeah. But it, but it does, but you can't outrun your mind. No, you can't. You can't.
0: Right. No, you're, you're, you're so right. I mean, you, you're, you're, You're you're almost paralyzed. I mean, it's a it's a and I can overcome so many physical pains and symptoms and push them aside or compartmentalize them or you know just suck it up and get through it like you learn in sports when you're you know younger. But you can't. You're just it's just overwhelming and you know it's it's interesting i'm i'm learning a lot you know about with this conversation about how inflammation so i want to you know kind of go back to something that i've always thought and i've been trying to tell my friend i'm like dude just go out and move get out in nature go for a walk go in your pool and swim you know get in the hot tub try to shake your like move your body like change your state what i've understood From some of the research i've done especially in movement science is moving your body changes your state it changes your state of mind so it helps you to maybe think about something else right you're not thinking about the problem like you said but you're thinking about moving like okay i'm going to walk around the block today and then tomorrow i'll walk around it twice or you get on an elliptical and i'm going to do five minutes and it starts to push you know it starts to your inflammation levels can come down Right. You're starting to increase the other good hormones in your body and try to right. flip that balance. So what's your opinion on that?
1: Well, here's the thing. Exercise is a huge deal. But the thing about chronic pain that to be really careful of is that everything helps in chronic pain. And exercise has been one of the mainstays. But we, we do know I, I tried to pull a paper this morning so I could talk, quote it to you and I'll send it to you later. But exercise is, is anti-inflammatory. Mm hmm. Period. Yep. Getting, getting out in nature has actually been shown to be anti-inflammatory. There's a thing called barefoot running. Actually, connection with that soil is actually anti-inflammatory. So what it does, it calms down the nervous system. So the question I forgot to finish the answer to, the trick question is, okay, anxiety represents an elevated sympathetic response to a threat. In humans, it's sustained because you can't escape your thoughts. Mm-hmm. So you have elevated inflammatory markers, you have elevated adrenaline, cortisol, histamines, so the the question is okay, and it's not solvable. In other words, you, if you didn't have anxiety, you wouldn't survive. So how do you diminish anxiety? Mm. This is a trick question.
0: I you know I mean you don't. I get, I'm going to say is you, I don't know if like you, you. Well, I mean you diminish it, but like you said, it's always there. Every living animal creature on the planet has anxiety. So it's right. managing it, or you know being able to. You, you, can't ma- you can't yeah. manage it, cannot manage it, right? Uh, okay. So I'm going to use the word
1: process. So here's the deal. Process. Okay, so it's okay. 20 million to 40. And so there's a bunch of tools that are pretty simple. So the answer I'm looking for is a simplistic answer by by design is that, okay, anxiety represents this elevated neurochemical state. So, the way you de- so it's a sensation generated by this hypervigilant nervous system. Mm-hmm. The way you decrease anxiety is you decrease that neurochemical state. Mm-hmm. And there's two categories of doing that. So there's the direct ways of doing it, and then there's neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So the first tip is to understand that anxiety is what you have. It is a gift. It's how every living creature evolved. These species of animals that did not pay attention to the environmental cues didn't survive. And so the sensation is intended to be so unpleasant that it forces you to take action. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, guess what? You didn't survive. The species of humans right now that's alive is survival of the most anxious as well as the most fit. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Otherwise, okay, so by definition, the species that's alive right now is survival of the most anxious. So the first thing to understand is a gift is necessary. You're not gonna get rid of it. And so the first first thing to do is to separate your identity from this reaction. Mm -hmm. The first thing I ask my patients to do is look, get rid of the word anxiety, and just visualize a large thermometer on the opposite wall, and just say to yourself when you feel agitated or upset, that my stress chemicals are elevated mm-hmm. that's it okay they just visualize this thermometer and there's a wordplay. i call alert nervous afraid paranoid and terrorized i mean it's a real wordplay on the amount of anxiety you feel but anxiety is that description of a chemical state afraid or fear is one of those subsets of this neurochemical reaction
0: mm-hmm.
1: my friend dr stephen portis who wrote this book called the polyvagal theory does not like the word anxiety at all because his point is just an elevated sympathetic response to a threat. And I agree with that. But anxiety is the bridge work. Because correct me if I'm wrong, anxiety is considered by most people, including myself and stroke, to be a psychological problem. Is that That's a first correct. statement? Okay. Yeah. It's, it's inflammatory. It's your total body's response to the environment. And you have to have it to stay alive. So you're not going to get rid of it. You don't want to get rid of it. So the first step is simply just separate from it and visualize, okay, this is what I have to stay alive, but it's not who I am. Mm -hmm. When your identity gets wrapped up into it, you feel ashamed, guilty, all these different unpleasant feelings. So it's not your identity. That's your cognitive part, which is separate from this survival response, which is amoral, by the way. In other words, anxiety functions to keep you alive. That's it. There's no morality to that reaction. The first step is to separate from it. Then there's two categories of drop in stress chemicals. So again, anxiety is a, is a sensation generated by this elevated neurochemical reaction to a threat. And so the two categories, so the way lower anxiety is decrease those neuro, neurochemicals. So there's two categories. One is direct and one is neuroplasticity. So with the direct means, you just use means like just mindfulness. You just drop your shoulders down. Mm-hmm. You just feel the environment for a second, three to five seconds. I do this all day long. I call it active meditation. Take a deep breath, drop it down, and you change sensory input. And instead of your mind pushing your muscles, your muscles are now programming your mind. Mm-hmm. So it's a simple tool, just drop down stress chemicals. And as you drop down the stress chemicals, anxiety drops. So if you notice my voice dropped just a little bit, I don't know, yes. if you, how, how do you feel just doing that? Make yeah, a I feel change. relaxed to feel, yeah. Right. So, you know, three to five seconds, maybe 10 seconds. We actually do it during surgery. Which, which gave us a huge improvement in performance and function. Another factor is don't discuss your pain. Don't don't complain. Don't look at the unpleasant news. Remember, those are mental threats. So if you're my patient in my office, say, look, when you walk out of my office, from this point on, you'll never discuss your pain again with anybody ever. Not a word. You're not going to discuss your medical care. The only person you can discuss your medical care are with your different providers, but you're never going to discuss your pain ever again because where's your attention? Mm-hmm. And you're agitated and frustrated. So, again, that sensory input is unpleasant. So, just drop your shoulders, take a deep breath. Pretty big deal. So, things like visualization, exercise is a way to drop down stress chemicals directly. Nature, barefoot, the breeze, just feeling, connecting, all those things drop down your stress chemicals. What doesn't work is talk therapy. Mm-hmm. Right? Because so the other category, which is equally important, maybe more important, is that you have a threat, and a threat's going to give you a survival response automatically. There's a term that's called neuroplasticity, which has three steps. One is become aware of the, of the threat, then you separate, and then you reprogram. So it's awareness, separation, reprogramming. And so the key to this one, what got me in trouble, I was so good at suppressing anxiety, I didn't know it existed. Mm. So I had no awareness of my anxiety. So I couldn't separate from it. And there's an exercise that, that is the foundation of the entire project. And I know you're in exercise, but what happens is behavioral changes are really critical to try to make things different. But I have a book in my hand called Opening Up by Writing It Down by Dr. James Pennybaker that I think you would love to look at. It's a quick review, but he started the research in the 19, early 1980s and they found out that different forms of expressive writing dramatically dropped information. inflammation, dropped viral load, improved athletic and student performance, improved liver function, improved wound healing. And what it ends up doing is actually dropping inflammation. Hmm. And what you do, you simply write your thoughts down on a piece of paper, tear them up. And you're tearing them up for two reasons. So first of all, it's a separation exercise. It is the only aspect of the healing process that is mandatory. And Hmm. I repeat, mandatory. People can get better without it, but nobody actually Really heals without the step. And it's not the solution, but it creates an awareness and a separation. After my 15 year journey in chronic pain, horrible anxiety, within two weeks after I started the expressive writing, which was by accident, by the way, things started to shift. After 15 mm-hmm. solid years, within two weeks, things started to shift. And what happens is that you have an awareness of the thought, and it's just a separation exercise. So the thoughts are on the table, you're here. So you have awareness, separation, and one move you tear them up for two reasons. One of them is to write with freedom. Most of the research has been done with negative emotions and thoughts, but you don't have to be negative. Just anything counts. So the research also shows that just writing makes a difference. If you can pull out some emotional factors, that's great. But you wanna write with absolute freedom, so that's why you tear them up. But more importantly, we're talking about neuroplasticity here, which is awareness, separation, reprogramming, and they're just thoughts. If you want to analyze these, quote, issues that come up, you're actually reinforcing the issues. Mm. And that's why talk therapy doesn't work because your attention is on the problem, not the solution. Mm. What the expressive writing does, again, a mandatory first step, so simple. We have hundreds of patients getting better with this one step, just starting with this one step. is awareness separation. And then you're not getting rid of these thoughts because they're permanent. They're permanently embedded in your brain, plus there's trillions of thoughts. So when you think you're dealing with all these issues, you're actually paying attention to them and your attention on the problem, not the solution. So again, the category of dropping your stress chemicals directly, we just talked about. But neuroplasticity is awareness separation reprogramming. So you do awareness separation with your writing and then just take a deep breath, drop your shoulders. That's a redirection process, okay? A more complex way of reprogramming is awareness separation is anger forgiveness. Mm. So the research shows that over 90% of people in chronic pain have still held on to the person or situation that injured them. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense in a way. But interestingly enough, the research also shows that the person that they're the most angry with is themselves. Mm. Okay. So whether you're angry at yourself or somebody else, your nervous system is still fired up. Your stress chemicals are fired up. And so it turns out that forgiveness is an awareness. You have to be aware of the problem, aware of the anger. Then the separation factors of forgiveness, then reprogramming is one of three categories. And again, this comes in stages because you can't just go there without doing the first foundational steps. But reprogramming tools include play, reconnecting with friends, nature, taking those walks we talked about, exercise. So, play is one, giving back is another one. Attention to somebody else, not yourself. Mm-hmm. Then the third one called the spiritual journey, which is not a religious connotation, but when you're surviving chronic pain and anxiety, you, you lose creativity, you lose your perspective. And to me, the spiritual journey is awe, gratitude, good glass of wine with friends, telephone call, taking a walk with friends. I mean, just connecting with life in general to mm-hmm. me is that perspective. So that's the um, ultimate answer to chronic pain is that you can't solve chronic pain, but you move your brain into a different direction. But the speed that occurs is stunning. I just read two research papers this morning that blew me away. I've sort of known about this, but let me just give you an example is that it's not just that the nerve cells grow and reconnect, you can actually switch into different circuits very quickly. They did one relatively famous research paper in 2007 they took volunteers and blindfolded them very tightly for five days. Then they did these research MRI scans on their brains called functional MRI scans, which shows the metabolic activity in different parts of the brain. What they found out within five days that the auditory center, I wouldn't say it grew into the, I mean, the cells were already there, but what happened is the auditory system became very active and went right into the optical center or the vision center. And when they took the blinders off, people had trouble separating these things out. They also found out with people when they do the visual occlusion that the frequency sensitivity goes up dramatically. That's why people that are blind can be braille so much better than somebody who can see Mm -hmm. because this shift occurs within three to five days. So if you shift from anger, frustration to play, that part of your brain is already there. It's how we developed as humans is interacting with other humans in a playful manner. Mm-hmm. Social connection is a big deal. So you're not only creating new circuits, you're actually shifting on the circuits that are already there and are pleasant. Mm-hmm. So with the visual auditory or visual tactile systems, those systems are already there and the shifts the brain adapts very quickly to keep us alive. So the cell plasticity and shifting occurs very, very quickly. So again, two ways of dropping down your stress reaction is directly with mindfulness meditation, visualization, exercise. The other category of neuroplasticity is that you're physically changing, you're physically stimulating your brain to change. So the final concept I just wanna leave people with is that I call it the DOC project, direct your own care. And it's very paradoxical and people get frustrated with this part of it because if you're trying to fix yourself, where's your attention? Trying to yourself. yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's not like my bad golf swing. I keep trying to fix my bad golf swing instead of creating a good golf swing. But if you're going to learn a new language such as French, you're going to read the books, listen to the tapes, maybe immerse yourself. But in five years when you can speak fluent French, something happened. Your brain changed, right? New connections, something changed so your brain can now speak fluent French. But you didn't learn French by trying to fix your English. Mm-hmm. Right? So same thing with chronic pain, remember the default mechanism to threat is pain. It's supposed to be an unpleasant sensation that causes you to take action. So the default language is chronic pain. Mm-hmm. The way you solve chronic pain is you move into a different set of circuits. I call the new language an enjoyable life. And the key here is not positive thinking, which is a way of suppressing negative thinking, but it's a positive vision. What do you want your life to look like? Who do you want in your life? Where do you want to live? What do you want to do? What makes your life enjoyable? And pain or no pain, that's where you want to go. As you engage and work in those circuits, your pain circuits start to drop down. As you know, with any skill, when you quit using it, it doesn't disappear, but it starts to atrophy. Mm -hmm. And so the solution for chronic pain, again, mental pain being the bigger problem, isn't trying to fix it or solve it. It's simply changing direction and stimulating Stimulating your brain to physically change structure.
0: Mm, I love that. You know, it's so in line with what I've been doing and maybe not in such a structured way, but, you know, we talked a lot about on this podcast gratitude. I'm a big believer in gratitude journals. I, I told you just before we started the recording that I had back surgery. It'll be 16 years this October. It was not originally from the accident that I told you about, the traumatic brain injury that I had falling off of a balcony when I was 19. It was unrelated. It was related to doing too many crunches and focusing too much on my core, which I've always had a great midsection and I wanted it to look even better. I just structurally damaged my 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 spine where I had a, a herniated disc in L5S1 that was impinging right on the nerve. Uh, roots there. And I was like at 29 years old. I felt like a, a 90 year old man. I was bent over. I couldn't sneeze without holding onto a wall. I couldn't poop without, you know, holding onto the side rails and getting nervous. I mean, it was terrible. And I had epidural shots to kind of take down the or cortisol shots to take down some of the inflammation, the acute inflammation. But I ended up having the surgery and, you know, maybe three, four years after 90% of it was cleared up But then I got into this whole mindfulness that you're talking about, you know, mindfulness, gratitude, joy, nature, not worrying as much and just being okay with like what is and how like I perceive the world, like it's going to, it's, it'll unfold. Like I don't, I can't change anything. Like I'm a little OCD as well. So not being able to always in control. And once I got, you know, in this process, that 10% of that residual pain that I still had disappeared like that. And I told you I've been pain-free for over 10, 11 years now. Nice, And it's yeah. because nothing, I didn't wasn't doing any other different exercises. I wasn't eating anything necessarily totally different, you know, dramatically that would change the inflammation levels of my body. I believe it was the other parts, you know, that I didn't know that were contributing to that other 10% of inflammation that I was having that, you know, just, it was like, wake up in the morning. uh, I don't feel so good. And it would just come, it was there, you know, it was something I always thought about. So I'm a huge believer in all this. And you know, in hindsight, do I wish I didn't have the surgery? Well, you know what? no regrets it worked and i did it but i would have liked to have known this then you know can, and can, I, can I ask you a question a couple questions sure. about your back surgery so when you had the surgery
1: how long from the onset of the pain to this till you had the surgery how how much
0: uh, you, i would you say know? about five
1: months six okay. months and it was the pain primarily in your back or in your leg uh,
0: it, i had referral pain going down my leg i had you know, you know a little bit of uh like that nerve you know was going down to like almost my calf it didn't go all the way down to my foot you know, I didn't was have it, drop foot. Was it mostly back pain or mostly leg pain? I would say it was more like hip. Yeah, hip and leg pain. Mm-hmm. It was. Okay. So here, I
1: wrote this book that she held up called Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? And yeah, I just day. got it. Yep. So I quit my practice because probably 70% of spine surgery should not be done. Mm-hmm. Now, yours, yours is one of the scenarios that surgery probably should be done. The data shows really clearly if you have a ruptured disc with leg pain, that people's recovery is better with surgery. Mm. But there's two factors. One is the nature of the problem. So you had what's called a structural problem. You had mm. a pinched nerve with matching symptoms. And when you take the pressure off the nerve, it's great, right? It's like going to a dentist with a tooth that's infected. You take it out and everything's fine. So then, let's say you, I don't know what your life was like there, but let's say for discussion sake, you have sciatica and you're just going through a divorce or something horrible else, and your nervous system's fired up. What the data says is try to get the nervous system calmed down first before you do the surgery. And again, excellent outcomes. And what we started doing the last seven years of my practice is doing what's called prehab. And again, mm-hmm. by the way, I might have done your surgery relatively quickly, even faster than five months. I mean, that was a classic indication for doing surgery. So I'm gonna call you a structural problem with a reasonably calm nervous system. I'm just gonna assume that. Okay, so surgery works well, and I did surgery. But what I also found out that if you had a structural problem, in other words, something that was amenable to surgery with the fired up nervous system, I could do the perfect operation, incredibly well done operations, terrible pathology. Not only would the pain not disappear, it would get worse. I'm going, Mm -hmm. excuse me, what's going on here? Then I started realizing about chronic pain that is a programming issue. We know within six to 12 months that pain gets programmed into the brain, it becomes permanent, just like riding a bicycle. So the other category is people that I call non-structural problems. For instance, back pain is muscular, tendinous, inflammation. There's nothing to operate on. Mm -hmm. And one of the most common reasons of doing back surgery is degenerative disease, that's been clearly shown in multiple research papers over and over and over again that disc degeneration does not cause pain. Mm. So there's almost 20, over $20 billion of year of surgery being done for back pain. The success, you know what the success rate? First of all, if you had back pain for a year and I was you came to me as, as a patient, what percent success would you like to have before I did a spine fusion on you? But the spine fusion being a pretty big operation. We weld, your vertebra- we weld your vertebrae together. We create a bridge of bone so that disc quits moving. So that's a pretty big operation. What percent success would you want before you went through that operation?
0: Mm, I mean, I'd want to know that it was ninety percent or better. You know, that's right. Yeah. And, and so, and I
1: thought, and again, I was one of those aggressive surgeons when I started. And I thought the success rate is success over ninety percent. A paper came out in 1993 out of the state of Washington showing that the success rate. Of a back fusion for back pain was 22 percent Oh, that's there's never been one research paper in 60 years that's demonstrated that a back fusion works for back pain, mm. especially compared to a good solid rehab program. And we know chronic pain is a memorized neurological problem. It is not structural. Mm-hmm. And we know that disc, we don't know where back pain comes from most of the time, but we absolutely do know that disc degeneration arthritis sponsors. Herniated disc. None of those cause back pain. It's been mm-hmm. well documented. You know, it's the most common reason of doing back surgery right now. Is on a unquote, pathology that doesn't exist. So it should be called degenerative disc disease. The answer would be better called normally aging disc, which means your spine becomes stiffer. You're, I'm not 20 years old anymore. My my discs are all gone. I have no back pain.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I've
1: had two back I've had two back surgeries myself. By the way,
0: no, mm. oh, interesting.
1: And, yeah. yeah, so I had a structural problem, got better, ended up with a postoperative infection, which required another operation.
0: Uh-huh. But yeah,
1: I don't have back pain. All my discs are gone, mm-hmm. but that's pretty classic.
0: Well, so, what you had mentioned earlier, just you know, just a few minutes ago, something that I did that I did intuitively, not knowing, and and it kind of became part of my shtick or my unique selling point in my business is prehab. You know, I was in pain. But I pushed through the pain. Like you said, I'm tough. I I just knew that I wanted to go into that surgery in the best shape possible so that when I came out, I was going to be smooth sailing. I got out of bed the day after surgery and walked almost a mile in my hometown. I I, I had the surgery. I was living in California, but I had the surgery in in, uh, New Jersey uh, because I wanted to be near family in case something happened. I just, you know, I wanted some TLC. So I walked in my hometown with, you know, the just, I would say less than 24 hours being released from the hospital and the surgery. And I walked gingerly, I walked carefully. I didn't like, you know, walk at a fast pace and think I was doing anything fitness oriented. But I was just like, I'm going to move. I'm going to walk. And I did it over and over again. I started doing, you know, some core basic exercises where I was bracing my core and keeping things alive and moving them and doing some hip, you know, flexions, extensions and rotations just as much as I could without creating any more, you know, without creating any kind of damage. And within three months, I was running, surfing, doing everything I could do before. It was awesome. Yeah. No, you did the
1: ideal thing. And that's what we we started to do with our patients, the prehab. So you're the classic patient who does extremely well. Of course, I'm a surgeon. But what happened is we started doing prehab before surgery. And again, I think you needed the surgery. So I'm taking you out of this picture.
0: Mm -hmm. But
1: I had people with with what's called spinal stenosis, which is extreme pinching of the nerves with leg Mm -hmm. pain. It's bony stenosis. It doesn't get better with time as far as the structure. And for 12 weeks, we get people sleeping better, they would do expressive writing, relaxation, calm down the nervous system, stabilize medications. So we started doing doing that with every patient every time. And what happened, over 120 patients canceled their surgery mm-hmm. because the pain disappeared. At the end of my practice, I was operating on less than 5% of the patients I saw in the office. I put myself out of business. Mm-hmm. I was shocked. And then I looked at the data again. There's also data that shows the same thing, that if you – have severe hip, knee, or shoulder arthritis that the degree of pain does not correlate with the degree of arthritis. In other words, people with severe arthritis often have no pain. People with minimal arthritis often have severe pain. And what they found out is that the severity of the pain actually correlated with the severity of stress, which again, you and I both have talked about is about inflammation. So that's what's so key is that is that you can optimize your surgical results by doing exactly what you did, And the data says that only 10% of surgeons are actually addressing prehab before they do surgery, number one. Second of all, they're doing surgery on normal spines. Third of all, instead of of doing one and two level fusions that don't work, which is it's, it's its own problem, they're now doing eight, 10, 12, 14 level fusions from the neck to the pelvis that doesn't work. And these people's lives are destroyed. The pain is not only worse; it's much worse. Now they have a stiff spine. There's another paper showed out that after spinal deformity surgery, there's a seventy-three percent chance you'll be readmitted to the hospital within two years Mm. for a spine problem. So that's why I quit. So I went across a kid who was in his mid-thirties who had an operation he didn't need, nothing structural, nothing to operate on, paralyzed, Mm. and that was it for me. I said, "I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore." So I quit my surgical practice because I was watching three to five patients every week having surgeries done or recommended that just didn't need to be done with really destroyed lives versus hundreds of patients going pain-free with no risk, no cost, self-directed. The contrast became so dramatic. I said, look, I gotta get this out there in a different realm. So that's why I appreciate being on your on your show because mm. I spent probably eight, I'm quote, retired, but probably spent eight to 10, 12 hours a day doing podcasts, talking to people, writing, all sorts of stuff. I had some think tanks going, but the bottom line is we're doing procedures that are random, simplistic, and risky, and expensive that don't work. It was really ironic in medicine that the procedures we're doing have been documented to be ineffective.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So people, anyway, it's a whole different story. I'm not sure we so, go on so, that you
0: know, route. I, I, I'm, I'm glad we're on this t- topic because, I mean, what is it? Eight out of ten people suffer back pain, you know, at some point in their life, and it's sometimes so debilitating. I think it's the number one reason why people – don't show up to work. And, you know, it's causing our healthcare system, a lot of distress because of the, you know, the medical bills, whatnot. So let's get to the your book, do you really need spine surgery, you know, coming from a perspective of someone who's a world renowned back surgeon, and now doing this functional holistic healthcare, where you're saying and advocating no back surgery, you know, for many cases, not all, what is the what is the What is the kind of the summary of this? How do we, you know, what can we get from it? If you can give, in part, three words of wisdom, you know, from the book that would motivate someone to go get it who is suffering from back pain, can you give us that synopsis?
1: Well, the book creates four quadrants and it's fairly easy to put yourself in one of the quadrants. And each quadrant has a completely different treatment. And so the two variables are the state of your nervous system. It's either calm or fired up. And the other factor is this, is the anatomy, which is either a structural problem that you can see or non-structural, which you cannot see. Mm-hmm. So like in your situation, you're, what's called a 1A, you had a structural problem in a calm nervous system, the success rate of surgery is well over 90%. Now, if you're going through some life trauma, you'd be a 1B. In other words, you had a structural problem, something that was operable. And, but you were going through some personal stresses, so we would try, if we could, to get you calmed down before we did the surgery, again, with a much better outcome. The problem occurs in the type 2 patients, which are non-structural. In other words, you have back pain. Disc degeneration does not cause back pain. And so let's say you're a 2A, which means you have back pain. Life is otherwise good. You're not particularly stressed out. And people in this type 2A group never push for surgery because they're not going to go through surgery. I mean, life is good. It's a nuisance. It's a hassle. But they'll write it out, and their back pain is going to go away. And again, since there's nothing anatomically wrong, it always improves. The problem is what I call the 2B group, where you have nothing wrong with your back structurally. Your surgeon said you have degenerative disc disease. We need to do surgery. And your nervous system is fired up. Usually, there's workers' calm, welfare, poverty, homelessness. I mean, there's all sorts of stresses that really fire up your body's nervous system. And you're desperate. And what happens, you're very vulnerable to a surgeon walking into the room, saying, look, I can take care of you. Most unnecessary surgery is done in what I call the 2B group, which is a normal spine for your age in a fired up nervous system. And it doesn't make any sense at all that surgery should be done ever. I'm upset with the medical profession for even offering that as an option. Again, there's not one research paper in 60 years that says we should be doing surgery in that situation. And even from a common sense, sense, sense standpoint, if you go to the dentist with an infected tooth and you pull the tooth, it works fine. If you go to the dentist with mouth pain and you can't find the source of the pain and you start doing random procedures, it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. So this 2B group is already stressed out. Now you go through an operation, which is stressful, and the surgery fails. Then the surgeon collects his fees. He or she goes on with his, life, his or her life, but that surgeon won't take care of you the surgeons are not gonna take care of you. The rehab docs probably aren't gonna take over your primary care. The primary care physicians are overwhelmed with just life in general, so they can't take care of you, plus, quote, you've had surgery. So I call it the surgical strat- scrap heap, where once you've had surgery that's failed, you get tossed out, and there's nobody really to, to take care of you. So again, the solution to chronic pain, so I, I wanna do and say that chronic pain is solvable. There's a sequence of steps you can do to calm down the nervous system, if you have a calm nervous system and nothing wrong, you'll get better. Mm-hmm. Even with a structural problem, when you calm down the nervous system, it improves the nerve conduction, the pain still goes away. Mm-hmm. That's why I had over 120 patients with surgical problems that canceled the surgery. Not because you're trying to live with the pain, the pain just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Because we know inflammatory cytokines actually attack the nerve in the cheese, they attack the myelin cheese, and you've doubled the nerve conduction. You've yeah. increased, you've actually had inflammation of the brain. So again, inflammatory response in the brain. So what happens is that I think that the essence of the solution is feeling safe and the medical profession right now has become predatory. The business of medicine is not allowing doctors to talk to their patients, right? We're making major massive surgical decisions on one visit. I don't know you, you don't know me The data says we should be spending at least three months working together so we know each other, so we feel comfortable, so you feel safe. And that's the paradox. As you start to feel safe, your body chemistry changes. You don't need the surgery. Mm -hmm. With the spinal deformity patients, which were the 10, 12, 14-level surgeries, I would actually prehab people for at least a year Mm -hmm. before I did the surgery. And it was remarkable how as people's pain diminishes, they quit splinting and they stand back up. Mm-hmm. they'd be straight. They wouldn't need the surgery either. So I just op- I started, started to operate on less and less elective surgeries. And I'm a surgeon. I was absolutely shocked that people with what I call structural problems could get better. So the book Do You Really Need Spine Surgery allows you really quickly to put yourself in a quadrant, allows you to assess your nervous system. You figure out which quadrant you're in, and you make a reasonable decision. So if you don't have a structural problem, surgery's out the door. Mm-hmm. And there's a misnomer where if everything else has been tried, we should try surgery. You've heard that before, right? Yes. Well, if there's nothing to operate on, why would you do surgery? Mm-hmm. And I'm asking the surgeon that, not asking you. So it's a surgeon's responsibility to make sure that you are not having a surgery that has such a low percentage. But again, 22% success rate for a spine fusion for back pain, mm-hmm. where there's a $20 billion a year mm-hmm. of spine surgery for back pain, Again, it's expressive writing we just talked about, opening up and writing it down. There's over 1,000 research papers and documents that it works. A thousand. I had never heard of it. Why? It doesn't cost very much to do. There's no risk. Nobody's going to make any money off of this thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be as simplistic to think it's all about money, but the money factor does enter into this thing. A thousand research papers. I never heard of it in medical school, my residency, my practice, I only ran across it myself by accident. Mm-hmm. And is the research, it's not just random research. These are very high-level research centers, high-level psychologists all around the world doing this thing.
0: They're all saying the same thing. Simple, simple step. I love it. It's, it. it's, you know, it's like, you said, it's simple. Uh, and it's, you know, I, I've personally found it very effective and anybody can do it anywhere. And I don't think it just necessarily applies to back pain. It applies to any pain right. anywhere, you know, whether it's emotional pain, maybe you're going through a breakup in a relationship, you know, writing things down, how you're feeling, you know, the fears you have. And then like, I like what you said, tearing it up and throwing it away because you don't necessarily go back and dwell on it. You know, I think that's a a really important point. I was going through some of that kind of work about 10 years ago during a breakup. And this, this individual had me burn the papers, you know, and at first I was like, this is crazy, you know? And, but now I see it's relevance because we always have as humans, a tendency to want to go back, right. And see what was there. Ah, That's not good. You know, sometimes the past is the past, you know, live in the present. So that's that's really great advice. Now, how does nutrition play involved in, in this? I, I, I'm, I'm certain you must have a, a nutritional, you know, nutrition background. I know it's not taught in school, in medical school. How does, how does it play a role in this uh, in this process as well? Well, I have to
1: say I'm very humbled by this whole nutrition thing because it's huge. And as a surgeon, there's no human being that are each worse on this planet than surgeons, almost to the person because we're so busy any time we spend eating is a waste of time.
0: Mm. So I
1: remember sitting down with my fellow a couple years ago and and for lunch, he had three bags of popcorn and two Pepsis. So that's how we eat. (laughs) It's sort of bad. So what I didn't realize until about two years ago is that there's a huge inflammatory response that again, elevates the cytokines, elevates inflammation. And so there's data shown out and I'm not initially recommending intermittent fasting today because I'm not the expert, but there's a, December New England Journal of Medicine article that looked at the data on intermittent fasting. Again, I'm not going to talk about the types. There's sort of a dramatic drop in inflammatory markers, dramatic.
0: Yeah. And well, so we've had a lot of guests on the podcast that are in the nutrition space and are experts in there. And if there's one overarching theme and one area that they all agree on, no matter whether it's paleo or Mediterranean or you know high fat, low fat, whatever it looks like, they all believe on the intermittent fasting. They all can agree on that. And I, I've been doing that for, I want to say, nine, 10 years as well, where I will have, let's say my last meal is 7 p.m., I don't eat anything, ingest anything until 7am the following morning. And usually the first thing that I'm taking in is just a lot of water, you know, usually 16 to 24 ounces of water. I wait to wait till I pee, you know, not the first pee, but like the second pee of the day. And it's funny to see, like, I feel like I cleanse my, 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 my body out more. And then I ingest like, like right now I'm doing a I've been doing for the past three, four years, like a vegan protein, you know, powder with either water or almond milk. And it just, I feel it's really good because it just gets into my body quick, you know, and I feel I get some, I warm it up, you know, it's like, kindle, right. you know, when you start a fire, you don't throw the big logs in there first, you put the the paper down and, you know, you get that started, and then the kindling and then the, the big logs. And that's kind of right. how I feel is, you know, the, that shake, that, you know, kind of uh, liquid, it's almost like insurer, you know, when you're old and you're in the hospital, they give you insurer has all these nutrients and vitamins and minerals and gets in there quick and it's absorbed quicker. And then maybe an hour to two hours later, I'll have my first meal, you know, and that's, that's kind of how, so it's usually like 14 hours that I've fastened. I feel amazing. It's definitely been great and you get used to it. Well, I read this data in December
1: and I go, oh my God, I said, "How can I not do this? It's ins- mm-hmm. it's insane."
0: also wrote well, a. I also we didn't get a chance to talk much about COVID today, but um, yeah, I we, want to hear more d- about that too. With inflammation, we discussed it a little bit before the, the yeah. recording. I mean, I'd be lucky to come
1: back and do 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 another podcast on COVID because it turns out that we actually developed a viable solution for the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. and it's the same approach as chronic pain. is you take multiple known anti inflammatory factors and put them into play, it should solve the problem. Mm-hmm. So it turns out if, so obesity and diabetes are big risk factors for dying from COVID because you start out with elevated inflammatory markers. And there's a bunch of things you can do to actually drop the inflammatory markers. So if you lose some weight, fine, but just going to an anti-inflammatory diet, particularly intermittent fasting, which I agree, it's not so hard. I have never been able to stick with a diet. I've been doing intermittent fasting since I read that article in December. And you do get used to it. I do almost the same program you do. And I have some arthritis in my hips and knees, which is down about 60-70% because of the fasting. Mm-hmm. And you just feel better. But from, an, from a COVID survival standpoint, with the intermittent fasting, even though, you, even though you're not losing weight, you're dropping out inflammation dramatically. And so remember, what you want to do is drop your inflammatory markers so when you get that cytokine rise or that inflammatory rise, mm-hmm. you stay below the threshold that kills you. So anti-inflammatory diet with intermittent fasting is actually one of the basic recommendations for that
0: amazing and you you're right it's in infl- it's an inflammatory response the more inflamed you are the more susceptible you are to dis-ease. and covid is a disease you know it's a right. your your body's inability to to fight it now let me ask you this and i've never never thought about it till just now if i'm exposed to covid and my body is strong my inflammation is low can i like, oh yeah, I guess I can. I'm like, I can fight it off. I have no, like, cause there are people that show no symptoms, right? You can have I, it and not. I don't think, Beth, I don't know if Beth told you, I had COVID. Oh really? Okay. I had it. I had the real deal. I had
1: it in March. And so, yeah, I have to, I mean, it's always easier to preach than practice, right? Mm-hmm. So for years, if I don't do my expressive writing, relaxation, forgiveness, all these things we just talked about, why I get antsy, my pain comes back, skin rashes pop, come back, et cetera. So I've been diligent about my expressive writing, et cetera. So I got sick in March. I had four or five days of being extremely fatigued, achy, et cetera. I tested positive for COVID. It took me about another week to get better, and I'm fine. I've been fine mm. since then. So my feeling is if I hadn't been doing the thing – so five years ago, I happened to draw some liver tests, and my inflammatory markers were, were way up. And I was re- realizing I was doing things like eating whole bags of Oreos and whole bags of chips, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did – Take note of that. I dramatically changed my diet, not to a great diet, but at least get rid of the super processed foods. And my inflammatory markers drop back to normal relatively quickly. So my hypothesis is that, okay, the risk factors for dying from COVID, as you start out with elevated inflammatory markers, I wrote a pamphlet that's on my website called Thrive and Survive COVID-19 and I put in 10 categories of things that dropped inflammatory markers that are extremely doable, including stress writing, the breathing, the exercise, the diet. There's a bunch of things you can do to lower your inflammatory markers. And if you're wondering, I think a test that's actually more important, as important as an antibody test, is called the C-reactive protein, CRP, and another one called IL-6, interleukin-6. is IL-6. And the IL-6 is a measure of your inflammatory cytokines. Hmm. So my suspicion is if you've had diabetes, overweight, not exercising, that your inflammatory markers are gonna be elevated. And then when you have that normal inflammatory response to the the threat or the virus, if you cross over that threshold, it starts drowning yourself. In other words, what inflammation is, it's fluid. White blood cells as fluid, it's like pus. And you fill your lungs up with fluid, you drown. Mm -hmm. So if you had an inevitable rise from a threat, the virus, if you start out with lower inflammatory cytokines, the chances of surviving are much better. Mm -hmm. And so it was called Thrive and Survive. You can download it for free off my website, backincontrol.com. And, you know, it, again, we and we also put up a plan B, which, again, different topic, different conversation, but by paying attention to the body stages of threat versus safety, there's things you can do at each stage along the way to minimize inflammatory response. And we think the mortality from COVID should be minimal. Mm-hmm. The frustration I'm having to work with, with my specialist writing and stuff, is like I can't get people to listen to it. Mm-hmm. So we put together a work group that put together a stunning document called Plan B, and I can email it to you if you want. But really, we have a solution for the COVID pandemic right now. And it's the same thing with chronic pain. We have a solution for chronic pain right now, but it's taking a combination of known effective resources. It's a combination that's going to work. So we're shooting for the big guns like surgery versus like antivirals. And the bottom line with COVID is that, for, for instance, you need vitamin D. Mm-hmm. Oh. Vitamin, D to fit, vitamin D helps kill the virus. It's actually the monocytes use vitamin D. It's like a drill into the virus. Mm-hmm. You also need magnesium for vitamin D to work. Okay, so if you're testing a big antiviral drug, you don't have the vitamin D levels covered, what are you testing? Mm-hmm. We also know there's papers showing that flat-out vitamin D lowers mortality. Same thing with zinc. We know elderly people in nursing homes are dying of COVID, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not necessarily age. We know that elderly people have both vitamin D deficiency and they have a zinc deficiency. Mm-hmm. And where zinc is, just like you have iron in red blood cells to help it function, zinc is in the middle of these proteins. They're called metalloproteins, to help the protein function to kill the virus. Mm-hmm. So what we're saying, look, cover the B, C, D, and K. Cover the magnesium and zinc on every person every time that should be a public health effort is covering those bases first. Mm-hmm. Then when, when he gets sick, I get sick, I'm
0: fine. Yeah. And, and that's the problem is we kind of, we, we go to the quick fix solution where it's a, like almost an immediate, it's a, it's an easier way, right? Cause taking vitamins, as easy as it is, people don't do it. It's like, they, they don't get into the habit. I've been taking vitamins for a long time and D is right. one of them right. and zinc is one of them. I, yep. you know, as soon as I feel, I don't take zinc on a regular basis, but when I feel like I start feeling like, let's say weak where I just know like, okay, maybe like my, I'm just, I'm burned out or I'm like, I've just been working really hard and my immune system's feeling a little suppressed. Like I start doing zinc to help me like, get over that hump. It's like, as soon as I recognize I might be getting a cold or something isn't right, or my immune system is low. Like I have these zinc, it's uh, I squirt it into my mouth like 20 or 30 times. I forget what the number is, but yeah, it goes into your bloodstream. It's a sub sublingual, you know, administration of dosage there. So yeah, I think it's really cool to think about this. I mean, I was talking to a client of mine two days ago about, you know, the vaccine I saw on the news that they were coming out with a vaccine and that it might be available in small doses in early 2021. And my client, you know, and I were talking, I was like, I'm not going to be the first one in line for that. You know, like, I don't even know if I'm going to get the vaccine to be honest. Like what are the side effects? Like everybody's like concerned about getting it. And is the vaccine going to work? And I heard it's only going to be like work 30 or 40% on most cases. Like, I'm not signing up for that. I'm not signing up for the flu shot. I'm not signing up for that. I'm like, I'm going to eat well, take care of myself, keep inflammation low. That's my perspective, you know, you know, until it becomes a law, maybe that I need to get it, then maybe I'll think about it. Or if it's in a couple of years of production and it shows that there's zero side effects. Well,
1: I'm just going to go back to the basics here. I mean, I think a vaccine is fine. I think there's lots of things to it. I don't think vaccine is going to solve the problem for lots of different reasons, different discussion, but we have the solution right now. This is a solvable pandemic right now. Mm-hmm. And we have no effective treatments. It's part of the, this plan B is actually cover the basis, make sure that the car is functioning fine. And then you, as the inflammatory response rises, which is the sympathetic nervous system, there's ways of recruiting the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system to counteract that rise so there's a sequence of events you can do then there's anti-inflammatory agents that are actually very powerful that are natural zero risk for instance towards the end of this deal they're finally doing research on this you know ketones correct ketone bodies yeah so we know that viruses love sugar they're inflammatory so we Mm -hmm. what we're doing right now in the icu is dextrose or sugar and the data says use ketones Mm -hmm. because they're very Mm anti-inflammatory So let's just say for discussion sake, and again, this is way down the line, that we don't think they'll get there very often, but in the ICU under threat, we think that ketones at that stage of the game would be extremely powerful actually dropping down mortality. Mm -hmm. So again, it's an additive, just like chronic pain, it's an additive process. You add in the vitamins, the ions, you add in the parasympathetic nervous system, then you add in some ketones. It's a solvable problem right now. Mm -hmm. We don't need a vaccine.
0: Mm I love it. I think it's awesome. And I think it's such an important conversation. Are, what is being done about that? I mean, there are people on, you know, in Congress, people going to Congress and advocating for this and discussing it. No,
1: I, I'm trying very hard. I mean, every day I send out two, three emails, make phone calls. Mm-hmm. So say, look, we're just looking at the science. Everything here is deeply documented to work. And we're just going to systematically apply those and it's going to solve the problem. So mm-hmm. we can't get sort of talk to policymakers, talk to companies, talk to physicians, and medicine has a sort of a bad habit of doing what we've always done. So you might have heard about three months ago how steroids are going to be the answer. Well, we've known for 40 years plus that steroids don't work for COVID pneumonia. They just mm-hmm. don't. Never mm-hmm. have, never will. Mm-hmm. So we tend to throw these random simplistic solutions at a complex problem. The solution to chronic pain is you take every variable, treat everyone simultaneously, so you treat a complex problem with all the variables. Same thing with COVID. There's a bunch of variables that need to be addressed. So systematically address them. is going to solve the problem. So we're, I'm working. I haven't given up. So I'm looking to the Surgeon General. I'm looking to government. I'm looking to hospital systems. And everybody's sort of too busy. But we did get the paper published. I'll, I'll, again, I'll send you a copy of it. And I'd love so to see that. Yeah, just working hard to get this out into mainstream thinking. Again, is an approach <clears throat> that needs to be challenged and refined. So we're looking at that.
0: Well, it would, it, listen, if you just had, even if you got, you know, 5%, you know, of people on board, I think it's a, a win, you know, so. Right.
1: But I would like to, I know we're almost out of time here, but what I would like to just finish up with really clearly is that, I just want people to understand that chronic pain is solvable. And it's not just back pain, it's mental pain and physical pain. There's over 30 physical symptoms that respond to calming down the nervous system. And they're all inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And so autoimmune disorders you know, all the cardiovascular diseases, peripheral vascular disease, um, neurodegenerative disorders, anxiety, depression, bipolar schizophrenia, all are inflammatory. So what happens is a sequence of events that calm down the nervous system. So the website is, the website is changed. It actually is drdavidhanscom.com, but we just are launching a, a very specific app called the doc journey that just got released this week and it's a sequence. The problem with, so people are getting better with the book and the website alone, but the website is unwieldy. The Doc Journey is an app that gives you a very clear pathway with lots of sidebars to answer questions. And it's extremely self-directed. It's been incredibly effective. If somebody decides to engage in the journey, again, it's learning the tools, not just reading the book, but actually learning the tools that to calm down your nervous system, probably 90% of people get better within three to six months. Some a lot faster, some a lot longer. The number one factor that predicts success is actual engagement. So again, is, is it can be accessed at thedocjourney.com, um, the, then docjourney.com. And DOC stands for direct your own care. And we're excited about it. My wife got involved with it made it very creative. She's a tap dancer. Hmm. And so it's something we're extremely excited about.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm excited for you. And you're up to really awesome things. And I love the the story, you know, your back end story of being a, a well-known surgeon and doing that to now doing things on a, a more functional basis. And it's really great to see that you've taken that transition in your life because I believe that more doctors today need to understand that, you know, and see I respect medicine. You know, there's not nothing no negative about it. I think it's important. I think it definitely serves our 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 humanity well and needs to be there. But I also think that they need to also understand this other component too and have a a, a, a mutual respect to that. And it's just not about the dollars and cents and you know getting people fixed up. You know, and like you said, the the success rate is really low. So. So if you could impart some of your wisdom on my listeners and just final thoughts, what is, if you can give one or two pieces of advice about general health and fitness, you know, living, you know, to a hundred and living pain-free, what two pieces of advice would you give to the listeners in the audience today? The, the number one word I would use is awareness. Hmm.
1: And like you talk about nature, exercise, et cetera, as you become aware of all these different sensations, et cetera, it starts calming you down. Awareness in of itself is its own tool, but also awareness of the nature of pain, both mental and physical. Mm -hmm. And so as you become aware of the nature of pain, you become aware of the solutions, just that awareness starts to change again. People start to heal. Remember you can't fix yourself, but you can allow yourself to heal. And that, that occurs with being aware of what's possible. And you talked about gratitude. And so as you allow your nervous system to heal, it's extremely easy to, I always, I always say easy. It's not work. It's, a, it's the opposite process. You're allowing your nervous system to heal. And, and the next message is just do it. You do not I said you don't have to believe in David Hascombe You don't have to believe in the Doc Project. In fact, I fact, say, look, embrace your skepticism. Almost everybody, including myself, that started this process said, well, this is crazy. So allow yourself to be cynical. Connect with what is. And just do it.
0: Mm, love it. That's awesome, everybody. So get out there, do it, stay healthy and fit. Until next time, uh, thank you, Dr. Hanskin, for being here and for your imparting your wisdom on us. I uh, love this conversation and to learn, to learn more about it. And, uh, you know, everybody visit all the, the, his three websites, correct? You have three of them?
1: I think, I think the main one I'd like to just put up there is thedocjourney.com. Okay. Right.
0: You can, you can link to the other ones, but Great. again, the docjourney.com. Great. Docjourney.com. That'll be in the show notes as well as you know just some bullet points on this conversation as well and some other resources that you can visit and stay in touch with Dr. Heskin. So again, everybody stay healthy and fit. Until next time. For more information or support on how you can be healthy and fit, visit my website at stevejordan.com or follow me on Instagram at stevejordanlifestyle. Subscribe to I Am Healthy and Fit wherever you are listening so you don't miss any future episodes that could better your health and fitness. One last favor, friends, please rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Your rating and comments not only help my podcast reach more people, but you could literally be saving someone's life who found it because of your feedback. Thanks again for listening and stay healthy and fit.